Hi, I'm Andy Psarianos. Hi, I'm Robin Potter. Hi, I'm Adam Gifford. This is the School of School Podcast. So welcome back to another episode of the School of School podcast. I'm here with the usual suspects, Andy and Adam. Hello, both. How are you today? Hello, hello. Hi, Robin. I'm really good. Thank you. Yeah, I heard I'm, it's... Oh, oh sorry, Adam. Or Andy, go ahead. I'm buzzing. I'm buzzing. I'm buzzing. You're buzzing. Yeah, you're buzzing. I wonder why you're buzzing. Oh, my goodness. I think it's because... I know why it is. It's because we have... A special guest here today, Jen Doucette. Jen is the Director of Teaching, Learning and Innovation at Collingwood School in West Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada. Jen, hello, how are you? Hi, I'm great. It's really exciting to be here to talk about teaching and learning. Thank you for having me. Yeah, well, we're so excited to have you on. And what we want to talk about, and I know nothing about from... <laughs> Just looking at at it, it, UDL. I mean, UDL. What could that possibly stand for? I think it means Universal Design for Learning. But other than that, I know nothing about it. So I think we need your help here. Could you kind of expand on what this concept is? I can absolutely expand on it. You're right, by the way. It is Universal Design for Learning. And it's a framework that schools put in place prior to even meeting their students. So sometimes people think universal design for learning is differentiation. And differentiation is sort of when you see your class and you respond to each individual student's needs. And universal design for learning are the structures that you put in place in your planning to ensure that more students are able to show success. So the goal of universal learning is that you have students that are you know, expert learners, they're purposeful and motivated, they've got the resource and the knowledge that they need, and that they're goal oriented. And in order to do that, there's actually some framework you need to put in place in your planning to make sure that happens. And so there's sort of three categories of UDL. There's, uh, you have to have multiple means of engagement. So how are students going to learn the material? So you're going to teach in a variety of instructional methods and models. Um, You're going to give students a lot of chance to show what they know and can do. And we can talk about uh, choice a little bit today as well. And uh, then they have different ways of showing uh, and expressing their learning. So it's this framework that sort of lays beneath that students probably don't even know is there. Uh, That's like a step earlier. It it actually promotes an equitable learning environment for everyone before that differentiation even happens, where you meet the needs of the individual's. It's uh, a lot of times I listen to this great podcast called 99% Invisible. I don't know, with Roman Mars. It's a great podcast about design. And universal design for learning is very similar to that, where they talk about, you know, sidewalk cutouts. Well, they're, they're handy for people if you have a stroller or a wheelchair. And they're necessary, actually, for people in a wheelchair. But they're also effective and useful for a lot of other people. And that's sort of what universal design for learning is. It's when you put something in place that is essential for some of the kids in your class, but benefits everyone else as well. Just some of the people, I, we don't actually know who listens to this podcast, but I imagine some of the people might not even be teachers. So um, I suppose if I were to try to bring it back to like the lesson planning element of it. So obviously before a teacher performs a lesson, you want them to think about what they're going to do, right? You don't want them just walking in cold. And generally, you know, I, my simplified version of 
the four questions they need to ask themselves are, you know, just to kind of summarize what you said is, what are they going to learn? Like, what am I hoping that they learn? And and hopefully whoever's teaching appreciates that that's a different question than how am I going to te- or what am I going to teach, mm-hmm. right? Because what you teach and what they learn are not always uh, uh, co-related. They should be, but they're not always. Yeah. And and the next question is how, how am I going to know? How am I going to know when they've learned it? You know, because what's what's your assessment criteria? How and that might look different for different people. So how do you know if somebody's actually learned what you need them to learn? And then the the next two questions are are the ones I think that are really important in the context of what you're talking about is like, what am I going to do if they can't get, if they don't get it? Like if if I haven't succeeded in, in making sure that they learn it, what am I going to do? You need you need to know what you can do. What what are your strategies? And and the and the last one is what am I going to do if they already know it? Because there's a certain amount of children are going to come into class and they're like, okay, you know, we're doing this today and. They're like, yeah, well, we've already done that. You know, I know this. So those are the four kinds of things that teachers need to think about. So in this UDL, this un- universal design for learning, how how does that address those things? So uh, it does and it doesn't for certain things. So when you talk about, I love this line, which is like, it's not about what you teach. It's about what they learn. Mm-hmm. So this idea of using, so one of the really big pieces of when you're assessing students is you're actually assessing yourself because I think in the olden days, uh, you'd give a test and you'd be like, oh my gosh, they all failed. Well, I guess they don't know it. Well, now we would actually say like, whoa, I guess I did something wrong there as a teacher because my students didn't didn't show their understanding. I clearly need to readjust my instruction and, and teach that again. So I think if you keep what you want them to learn at the at the center of every conversation, as you said, I think you're winning. And then you have to go and say, well, if this is what I want them to learn, what are the ways they can show that? So in the past, I just gave an example. It probably was a test or an essay or some sort of presentation. And now we would actually go through and say, well, what steps in the process do I need to make sure that I check in with students? Um, how am I going to let them check in? And so we say this a lot at Collingwood, but we have firm learning targets and flexible means. And this is where UDL comes in. So we can't give students choice on everything because there's skills they have to learn. Sometimes you actually have to write something. Sometimes you actually do have to present something. But if we can give them choice on how they show their understanding of something and we can remove the anxiety piece from what that assessment. So if I have test anxiety, I'm not going to perform as well as an, on a test as I might if I can explain it to you in person. Mm-hmm. If I don't like presenting, then I still have to practice that pre- presentation skill and I have to be assessed on the presentation skill, but maybe not with that type of content. So it's making all those decisions of where can choice be offered for students to show what they know and can do and where can it not be offered? Because if students chose all the time, they'd be like, I'll present everything. And they wouldn't be building their writing skills, right? And they wouldn't be building those other communication skills. Looking at this, I think this is really difficult. I, I, as, a, as a teacher, I think I'd find this really tough, genuinely, because if, if someone said to me, you know, you're about to do a lesson on fractions, whatever, it doesn't matter. And I need to do all of this stuff. And I've got to give them a chance to do all of this, and I've got to, you know, engage them in multiple ways and all that sort of thing. I'd find that really challenging. Did you find that that you, as a school and across departments that that you almost had like sub models that you could then go right? Well, these are the different things that you could do. So in terms of engagement, this is what these are the kind of options that you could use 
time and time again did that did that sort of go hand in hand with it or is that developed as it's gone along or so yes does, does that make sense yeah it does make sense so a couple things one thing we do is we we're only uh we've been doing a lot of other um improvements and and innovations at collingwood so this is just sort of um being worked on for those really innovative teachers and we always would say start start small so what's a unit you've done or even a lesson you've done that you think, okay, I could actually apply this to that lesson or unit and you can start there. So we aren't having teachers, some teachers do this for everything right now because it, that's just a lot of change. We've got longer classes, we've got other things that teachers are really working on. But we also have the benefit of having an inclusive ed department at Collingwood where we have experts in universal design for learning that can come in and they can observe a lesson, they can talk to a teacher about their planning and say, here are the different ways you could have students show what they know and can do in this way. Would you like to try these two? Um, one thing that's interesting feedback from students is if you don't do it well, it actually causes them more stress. So sometimes we'll say like, oh, you can have a portfolio project and it can have one of these many things. And they're like, this is too overwhelming. This is too much information. I don't know what you expect from me. And so that's why we're being really slow and purposeful with it. You know, don't just go, you know, you can do a presentation, a video, a podcast of this, because then the students are like, sure, I don't know how sure, to show sure. all this. So we've been really starting small with some, for some people, it's just one activity. And for some people, it's just one unit. And it seems to be working quite well. And then people can ask for help as needed because we do have a, a team of teachers as well. I, think, I just think that's really important. Uh, I just think that, that, that understanding that, that, that that is part of the process and that it takes time, I think is, yeah, it's really important. That's really encouraging. And you mentioned, Jen, you have experts in universal design and learning uh how does one become an expert because it, are there are there courses for this is it something that's just i don't know uh learned over different experiences how do you become an expert in udl since this is that's even a, great a concept i don't even i have never heard of before well you've probably never heard of it because we would have originally siloed this into special education mm. so if you were trained as a special education teacher or you've worked in uh, we now call it inclusive ed but if you've worked in in that department before this is what you're trained in you're trained in the ability to reach students who don't in the past didn't reach through the traditional means of teacher talking to students and students um, responding. So they would go for support and the support methods used to help those learners would be around this framework. And now the framework's coming into all classes because what we've realized that we didn't know is, you know, neurodiverse learners are all around us. Just because you don't qualify for an IEP doesn't mean you don't learn differently or you have a different way of approaching things or you need the opportunity to communicate your learning in a different way and so that's slowly something that we're taking away from being a department you go to to well let's see what helps all learners let's give everyone support if you don't need the support you don't take the support um but if you do need it it becomes essential for you to show your learning so this would have previously been there's a there's a lot of great um professional learning on this now and it's now becoming even more popular because they're doing it um, you can have universal design for equity and so to make sure you're, me you're meeting learners of diverse racial and cultural backgrounds that you're bringing all perspectives into the classroom so universal design is just growing and growing um, as it's kind of coming out of this siloed area and more into every classroom and also i think a lot of this 
is is a reflection also of an understanding that um, you know what what works for those who are struggling a little bit doesn't just work for those who are struggling a little bit. It actually works for everybody, you know. And and you know, like in mathematics, for example, which is obviously what I know most about, is is um, you know, if you look at the uh, the work of Jerome Bruner as inactive, iconic, symbolic, or buzzword for it nowadays, a concrete pictorial abstract. You know, the idea that when you introduce a mathematical concept, you first introduce it in some kind of concrete form, so that you know, children can actually concretize the idea. They they can play with the idea and feel it a little bit, like sort of what Zoltan Deans talked about, you know, uh, uh, the play stage of learning, where you can play with an idea in a concrete fashion before you actually start introducing kind of the language and the jargon. Um, it, it just helps to solidify the idea. And that is absolutely necessary for those who are struggling. You know, and then of course you want to move to the abstraction. You want to get to the abstraction. That's where you want to get to. Now, that, that's fundamental. If you don't do that with those who are struggling, they will never get it. But if you do it with those who are advanced, their, their depth of understanding just like, you know, is huge. Right? So then you're getting into this idea of mastery, this idea of like, it's not a question of, of, of accelerating children who are, who are um, you know, showing more promise, let's say. But, but really focusing on the depth of understanding so that you can, you know, and then now you're going into Joe Bowler's work is kind of like saying this low floor, high ceiling concept. Like you need, you need, an, you need an activity or a lesson that everyone can, can succeed at one level, but that it's, it's crafted in such a way that, you know, the most advanced learners may be thinking about it at a completely different level than, than those who are maybe struggling with the, with the concept, right? It makes teaching a lot more difficult in the sense that you got to be a lot more selective about the examples that you use, and you 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 need to understand how to teach, uh, you know, a, a very varied classroom. But if you do it, the payoffs are massive, right? Agree. And our, our math department is very good at low floor, high ceiling problems. They they engaged in that work a few years ago, and uh, they're also really good at the leadership piece, right? So you're a student who you're you're at the you're understanding at a different level. Well, how do you go over to this other group? and support them with your understanding. So all students feel engaged in the classroom and students really like learning from their peers as well. So it's working out quite nicely. But I, I think the point that you made as well, which is not everybody needs it, but they benefit from it. That That's ultimately, I was showing a video about nothing. It was like a video for first five, like come join this club. And I started playing it and the class said, can you pause it? So I paused it and they said, can you put the subtitles on? And I was like, okay, sure, because it was just some, a student had recorded it. And, and I thought, isn't that so interesting that they could all hear it? It was really loud, but they loved, they wanted to look at the subtitles. And this was just, you know, a class of grade nines that that's something that they know helps their understanding of it. They're reading along and watching. And it's the simplest thing. And I probably should have done it from the start. But I think jumping on one of the things that's being said is like, I think what, what, what's been described happened is, is that when someone doesn't understand something as a teacher, mm -hmm. I know traditionally what do most teachers do? You just repeat the same thing, maybe a little bit louder, maybe you slow your voice down something, but effectively you just do the same thing, right, until you just get to, just don't know what to do. But what it forces us to do in education, of course, is to think, right, well, I've got to come at it from a different angle, you know, if we're being professional about it and not just giving up. So, so I've got to come at it from a different angle, which makes us think about the concept more deeply. But of course, that same thing that we might think is quite a basic level for someone else 
might be well beyond the reach of somewhere because it's just an idea. So the, the idea itself doesn't change. It's just whoever's accessing it changes, right? And I think that's the thing. I think that, that it's kind of, it's probably been staring us in the face for a long, long time is that when do we really have to think about understanding an idea and so, or, or, or really have to think about how I can support someone's learning of an idea? We tend to do that when people are stuck. And so then it gets, then, then there's that immediate relationship with, oh, this is for struggling learners. And of course, it's such a nonsense, isn't it? Because that makes us think as educators harder than anything else. If people are just doing stuff, our jobs are doddle, right? Like, like you know, if they're just doing it and we've kind of got it right and it's that sort of Goldilocks, all was good. But that same idea is the same idea, whether it's someone who's struggling with it, whether someone's okay, you know, it's, it's the same it's the same idea. And, and it is really interesting that we're still, I think, in education a bit trying to throw off those shackles of, of this is an approach for when people struggle, as opposed to, no, this is the level of thinking that we need to give these ideas before we teach them mm-hmm. so we can understand it better to start with. Mm-hmm. And I'm also equipped better. Yeah. And and it's 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 a, you know, it's just that that same stuff, but we have to kind of see it or reframe it slightly differently, which is Yeah, and it's also interesting. also an understanding of like what does what does really truly understanding something look like? Because it's it's easy to get sort of caught up on you know, and I'm going to refer back to mathematics because it's an obvious one. If someone can generate their correct answer, often we just take the box and say, this person understands, they're functional, they've, they've got it. It was a real eye-opener for me. I mean, I know the research says this, but it was a real eye-opener for me when I was working with my study group, you know, um, that had one, one of the children that I was working with was like, you know, parents were constantly spending money on Kumon, you know, and she was like a human calculator, right? She could calculate anything. And... You know, at the, at the point where I said, okay, she, she, she generated the correct answer almost instantaneously on this somewhat relatively complex arithmetic, arithmetic-based problem. I said, okay, well, can you draw a diagram that illustrates this? I mean, that's, she couldn't do it, right? You know, I mean, it, it took a lot for her to do it. And you see, it, it, in, that, in that sense, that's kind of what you need to understand as a teacher is, is that, you know, the, the success criteria is not always obvious, right? Like, what, what does it take? What does it truly mean to be advanced? Because what the danger is with these pupils is, is that, of course, they skim the surface all the way through. They get accelerated. And, of course, when it does get to a point, you know, if you get into university-level mathematics, that's not going to carry you through, right? And then they hit that wall. And then they just collapse. And it's time and time again you see those students who get accelerated all the way through. And when it does get really, really hard, they just fall over because they don't have those, those skills that to dig in deep and say, okay, now I'm going to have to really work to find the answer. They don't see it as that. They see, you know, use Rosie Ross's, she said, you know, to see that, that math is actually a creative thing. It's not a speedy thing. Right. And that's a, that's a big thing. And it, it, it needs, it's the whole culture of assessing and, 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 you know, success criteria for teachers and all that needs to change really to be successful at this kind of thing. But I think I think in the past, I, I, I and this is just a, a general statement, but I've been in education a while, is that I think that we kind of made it easier on ourselves by saying things that, that totally supported what you've just said in a bad way, that it doesn't matter how they get the answer as long as they get the answer. Well, that's an utter nonsense, because if you've got children furiously counting on their fingers or writing a big thing down when you say, I don't know, what's the difference between 2001 and 1999? They're busy writing it all down and whatnot, not just knowing, not just seeing it's two, you know, like that sort of stuff. 
But I think also, I think that there was an accepted attrition rate, is that we just accepted that there was always going to be some children in the class who just didn't get it. How easy is that, right? So, so we could just say, doesn't matter how they get it as long as they get it, read into that. It doesn't really matter as long as they pass my year and my attainment scores look good. And then my, my colleagues, they can pick up the slack or whatever afterwards. That, 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 that there's an attrition rate, so it doesn't matter because you always get that. And all of these things fed into that. There was no, there was no onus on looking to support that. Now, good teachers have always done that. They have looked for it in those. But I think as a general culture, I think that that was, that was pretty persuasive. And, and thank God for, 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 for all of those children now, you know, like there's more emphasis on doing your job properly. And, and that's, that's right and proper and we have to think about it. And what it does do, especially if you've been in education a while, is you realise that, yeah, you're gonna, you have to work hard to do it. And that's, that's reasonable. And that's right. Mm. <laughs> anyway, yeah. yeah. No, yeah, absolutely. And, and the cost of not doing it is immense, right? It's immense for those individuals. It's not fair. Yeah. It's, it's wrong. That's it's right. all of those things. But yeah, yeah. that's massive. And yeah. so are, are other schools doing this? Are they calling it UDL or? Yeah, there are schools doing it. It's a big movement in the States right now. Um, there's also a big, um, you know, based on what Andy and Adam were just talking about, we used to do teach kids to do school well. Now we want to teach them to learn, right? Like that's the difference that we used to go, you're good at doing school. You can get these math questions. And if you didn't get them, maybe you weren't as good at doing school and we focus on the learning. Um, but yes, there's a, there's like a really great book that just came out recently. And, and it's I, I've given it to some parents as well to say, here's what we're trying to do to support you through this. And uh, yeah, there's frameworks. It's, it's really taking off now that it's being unsiloed from that special ed department. So that would be the only thing right now holding people back is, is just a mindset shift of, oh, this is for, as you both said, like this is just for these kids. No, actually, it's, it's a framework. And it's not a significant amount of change. It's just even things like your classroom routines, recognizing that really clear routines how you start the class, how you close the class, how you engage, how you transition through activities. For some students at the high school level, that's a difference maker on how they do in the class because it's unpredictable. They don't know what's going on. Like there's that anxiety at the high school level. Well, if you can firm those up in your classroom, that's a UDL framework practice. That's actually just gonna benefit everyone, even the kids who don't even care about frameworks or they don't care what's coming next. But that sense of like predictability and calmness, and even though the learning's gonna be hard, the, sa the space I'm in is really safe and I know is supportive, that's a huge part of universal design for learning as well. So it's all these underlying elements that good teachers, I think Adam said it, good teachers always have done. How do we, how do we bring that to the forefront to say, hey, this isn't just for a few kids, this is actually really good for all of our students, so. Jean, what was the name of the book? I have it right here. It's called uh, Seen, Heard, and Valued, Universal Design for Learning and Beyond by Leanne, I think it's Jung, it might be Young, J-U-N-G. It's a it's a really nice. It uses Hattie's research, and it talks about each of the um, each thing you can do and the effect it would have on learning. So it's a really nice it's a really nice read. Thank you for joining us on the School of School podcast.